This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello and welcome to Paranormal Pets. I'm your host, Brandi Stark, and today we are going to be talking with... Christopher Balzato and Natalie Christ about animal folklore in Florida. And we'll get started with this right after these messages. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Pick up two tubes of Dogosuds. Get the third tube free. Peppermint, tea tree, lavender, Dogosud shampoo. Made with all-natural coconut, jojoba, aloe. Great for healthy skin and soft, shiny coats. But no itchy, harsh chemicals. Lather up, rinse away. Try Dogosuds. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. And welcome back to Paranormal Pets. So, we've got Christopher and Natalie. How long have you been working with the ideas of folklore and studying folkloric stories here? Well, I've been in Florida for about 10 years. Uh, I was a specialist in kind of Massachusetts folklore, having come from there. So that I've been doing for about 25 years or so. Um, When I came down to Florida, I was really in full investigator mode because that's what my books were on. That's kind Mm -hmm. of the direction the field was taking. And I took some time off, came back wanting to get back to the folklore, which was the reason why I'd gone into it in the first place. So I'd say probably about four years, three years really, um, that I've been focusing on Florida folklore because when I first got here it seemed like Florida didn't have any. Um, <laughs> it's all hidden. It's word of mouth a lot it, of it. It is it, yeah. and what we've noticed we were actually just talking about this is the, the folklore seems to be concentrated uh, in the smaller areas and the less transient areas and finding a less transient area in Florida is like trying to find a Publix open on Sunday on Easter. Easter. <laughs> so um, so it, it's you know it, it took me a while to start to realize because you know I'm from I live in Cape Coral Fort Myers, she's in Bonita, Naples is a little bit more, but these are places that have so many people coming in and out all the time mm-hmm. that the stories don't tend to linger. Right. And so the places don't tend to linger. Once we removed ourselves from that kind of metropolis, if you want to call it that, um, we're able to find like, actually, there's a lot of stuff out here. And you know what? It's not that different from the things I was experiencing in Massachusetts and New England. That's pretty deep. Well, I know what you're saying, too, because we've been looking into the Cecil the ghost story. Mm-hmm. Um, and once again, you know, this has been up on my site for 10 years. I've, nobody's responded to it. I mean, I have other stories and I get emails every now and again or I'll bring them up and people are like, oh, yeah, nobody knows about this. Yeah. But I started experimenting and asking my students, I mean, you know, right before class, anybody have anything? And uh, sure enough, two students who lived in Safety Harbor, they don't know the story, but they, they're like, yeah, I kind of remember something about a, a sea, you know, a sea ghost or right, something right. like that. I'm like, okay, you know, but you're right. It is kind of interesting in this area. And, and that Cecil's not universal. Well, I mean, it seemed to, when you were telling me the story and we were going back and forth about this, it has elements from all this different folklore. So it does have that whole... Um, Bloody Mary aspect in that there's the repeating part of it, but there's also the I believe in you, mm-hmm. which is you know stems from the I believe in Mary Worth, which, 
which was the original kind of Bloody Mary, and then the Come to Me part, which is maybe a little bit more modern. And then, of course, the disappearing cemetery is something that there's a lot of in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. um, and I'm finding it more and more here in Florida. So there are elements of folklore that are more universal in the story. It's just the name is so specific. That's what really kind of throws me out. And I can't find the, the cemetery itself. I can find an African-American cemetery that seems to go back to that date. There's a lost cemetery, which I think I sent you that link on. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in the middle of a neighborhood, which is really weird. I mean, down in St. Pete, there are the missing graves that, you know, allegedly the Tropicana uh, Fields is haunted yeah. because they moved 9th Street into an area that there was a graveyard. And the story is they didn't take all the graves. Right. They didn't get everybody out because it was a pauper's field. You know, so that does get to be interesting. And even here, there's part of the urban legend about Odette Philippi. Right. And what happened to his grave, right? That he was buried here and there's a hurricane that comes through and just knocks everything off kilter, including his original homestead and his grave is missing. Which is so funny because the legend itself talks of this being the protected area and mm -hmm. him specifically even, you know, being safe from a hurricane by going up to the mounds and yet there's that reverse of it is like, you know, and then he's maybe taken out, his remains are taken out or his place in history is wiped free or wiped clean because of a storm. Kind of makes you get that feel of is there kind of, especially during his Key West days when there were maybe some sketchy things going on, is this like retribution? Or is it even the idea that in settling this place, um, he kind of allowed the, I mean, even if not directly, but at least making it a popular place or making it a place where people are going to settle the destruction of all the mounds. Some, some kind of retribution from, you know, beyond the grave years after he actually passed. Which is a pretty interesting element, yeah, because he's is, the first non-native settler here. Which is really great because folklorists can do that, right? We can make those connections and stories right. and we're not necessarily tied down to, but can you prove it? Right. Well, no, but doesn't it kind of make sense? Doesn't it kind of, can't you see that? If this is the kind of area where those kinds of things happen, where those kind of stories can be told, you can make that leap and, and it makes sense. Well, it becomes part of the cultural interpretation, which exactly. is pretty neat. So, before we go any further, mm -hmm. what is folklore? So, what is it that you specifically study? We study um, the stories that develop around hauntings. Okay. So if we go to some place like the Oviedo Lights or Ormond Beach that have these great orb stories or, or ghost light stories, which may or may not be natural, we're not concerned over whether or not it's real as much as it is what are the people in that area needing that they have to make up a story about. Mm -hmm. We've been to many places and we've read about many places research which we think are haunted, just not in the way that people think they are. I think we're actually coming up with a name for the for maybe our episode about the, the the mounds, and we wanted it to be, but not the way you wanted it to. Mm -hmm. to be. And we looked back and said we have a few episodes that are called something similar, because hauntings are happening all the time, and that's the field for parapsychology, for ghost investigators, for stuff that I used to do. This is more of why are we making up the stories that we need to make up about the hauntings? They mm -hmm. generally can't be proven. They generally end at a dead end of, of the research of it. And yet people tell and retell the stories. The many lights are a great example. And I know that you've mm -hmm. done a lot of research on that. Where these things are probably real things that are happening. But different cultures need to make up a story so that they can explain it. So that they can use it to teach people. So they can use it as a warning. So as folklorists, that's what we kind of do. And, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that now in 2019, those lines between what is folklore and what is myth Sorry. and what is legend, that's okay, and what is urban legend are all mesh now. And when I talk to academic people, even people who consider themselves purists, 
they want that blurring to occur. Mm -hmm. They're not as formal as it used to be, say, 20 years ago when I was first starting to do this and talking to academics that, no, this is a folklore, this is myth, and this is urban legend. It's kind of like it's being seen more of as a, as a, as a salad with all these different elements just making what is the cultural study of of these stories. And it's probably because the field became so popular and so mainstreamed that, you know, the blurring is a natural phenomenon. You know, it's really hard to kind of keep specifics anymore. Right, and, and that what we were talking about with, with the uh, Cecil or Cecil, the Cecil ghost, the urban legend aspect of Bloody Mary and the folklore aspect of the location are now smashing heads with each other because of the speed with which we get stories and can relay stories and how quickly they can change those lines have continued to blur. And I think it's an interesting thing, and I think that it's, it's uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how much religious belief comes into play for this. Obviously, the people who are telling these stories are coming from their religious background, their religious ideas. But the, the idea that, for example, myth is so much more based on a, on a belief system and a religion, that's really blurred kind of as we've lost a little bit of our stronghold on religion, but then also as we've kind of gotten these stories and combine them together that you can kind of just put it all together and folklore seems to be a really good umbrella term for all of this mm -hmm. you're quite correct yeah it is uh it's phenomenal very cool yeah. so since this is paranormal pets <laughs> we'll, we'll tie it back to animals sure. what are some of your favorite animal folklore stories and what can we learn from them i think it's really interesting i'm going to talk about stetson first Stetson University? Stetson, Stetson University. All right. Has uh, a few different uh, folklore stories that have been going around about Hully Tower. Okay. And the one that we were able to pretty much say has no founding whatsoever is that uh, there was a, uh, a woman who was dating her professor. They found out about the romance. Okay. He got fired. She got thrown out of the college. And then she committed suicide from jumping from Hully Tower, which is where... Uh, they would meet with each other. Of course, Helly Tower wasn't even finished or there when she... Right, so historically <laughs> it doesn't fit. Right, but. so historically it doesn't fit. But one of the ones that seems to still linger is this idea that the Hullies, who the tower is, is named after, take early morning walks together. Um, they died at separate times, and it seems that the, the, the passion and kind of the, the love that they had for each other based on the tower, based on the bells in the tower, remains there. And so they've been known to walk the grounds of it. Um, and so it's just really great. We've been working on something called Haunted Love, which is an idea of like an entire book of ghost stories that has to do about different aspects of love. But one of the things that's interesting is for every story that we hear about the Hullies, we also hear a story about either them as a couple or him by himself, forgetting his name, Edward, I want to say. You're usually the one I can go to, uh, walking their dog. Oh, wow. So somehow, for some reason, this couple in death is also staying with their dog. <laughs> you know, and the dog Or their story, dog stays with right, them. Or the dog right. stays with them. And it's really unusual because they all died at different times. The dog died at a different time. The man died and then the wife did. And yet, they seem to be reunited on this little patch of the land. Um, where they could be seen walking the dog. And sometimes they're with the dog and sometimes they're not. And it's really interesting to think of, well, why are they with the dog sometimes and not with the dog? And unfortunately, you can't correlate the stories and the folklore to times of the year or things like that. Correct. It just seems like this loving couple at some point also need to bring in the love for their dog. Oh, that is sweet. And what I love is that um, dogs are always considered liminal state beings. So 
Uh, we have stories going all the way back to, you know, the Greeks with Sedna, the Inuit with her dog, you know, always these liminal states, these guardians between worlds. But dogs are so loyal, you yeah. know, that they're also seen as ghosts manifesting uh, for their owners. And of course, we've seen multiple stories of dogs mourning the death of their owners, uh, going to the grave. Uh, there's one in Scotland, right, who always goes to the grave, who always went to uh, the grave of his owner after he died. And so that, that connection is always there. Uh, and and it's it's unusual not unusual but it's interesting that um, for every story that I've heard about a, a dog being loyal in the afterlife whether it's the dog that's passed or the human who's passed I hear as many stories about brothers you know dog okay. brothers or, or other people the family where the one dog has passed and the other dog continues to seem play with the dog or wait Aww. for the dog to come in and that there are signs of this actually happening that that brotherly bond that sibling bond seems to remain even after death and that's sweet and in fact uh, i was telling you earlier i had a pair of pugs odysseus and achilles who are litter mates and full brothers and they lived their entire lives together they came to me together i raised them from puppies and odysseus died in october and so I've got Achilles, but I've actually had, because of the psychic nature of paranormal investigation, I've actually had uh, at least one psychic say, did you have a pug that just passed? Something wrong with his eyes, because that was where everything started. And uh, I said, well, yeah, in October. And she said, well, he's still with you. And I, my immediate answer to her was, he's waiting for his brother. Yeah. I mean, they were always, always together. So I haven't seen him. I'm, I'm not gifted at seeing things, which is fine. <laughs> right, I've got right. enough to deal with in life. But I do find that to you be You know, I remember reading uh, something years ago that really changed the way I thought about things. And it had to do with this. And this is going to be very unscientific because I'm remembering something that I've kind of pieced together over time. And it's, it had to do with the amount of maybe gray matter that was in different types of brains mm -hmm. and how maybe one of the reasons why, why kids lose their ability to see things is not just training, that, that, that's not really, forget it, about yeah. that, but also that their brains develop differently. And when they were giving me the kind of breakdown of animals that have similar, once you got to birds, cats, and dogs, what we would consider their, the psychic centers of their brain if we were to correlate it with humans mm -hmm. was crazy developed mm -hmm. as opposed to some of the higher end thinking ones and things like that. So you don't want a dog to solve your calculus, but in terms of being able to pick up things psychically, Yes, yes, that's why we have Patroclus <laughs> right, with us right. today. I'm not quite sure how, how sensitive he'll be, but... Uh, and, it's, and it's interesting it's cool. because, you know, maybe, maybe five or six years ago, some of the shows on television that uh, are, are so firmly rooted in the science that they're putting forward as, as being part of ghost investigating, started using animals. There was a lot of pushback. I remember doing, uh, I used to work for a show called Spooky South Coast out of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And we got a lot of pushback when we were talking about these episodes and people were very vocal uh, saying that, well, like, how can they do that? That's so unscientific, that's so this. And it was like, well, it's another aspect of investigating. Why would you mm -hmm. want to put anything out of your toolbox? That's when right. you go to these places, especially because consistently it's been shown that animals are getting something we're not. And it is interesting because, uh, you know, when I do bring the pugs, I usually have to, there's a set of rules. I mean, they have to be allowed to come in. I'm not going to force them anywhere. I have to know where the local emergency vet is just in case. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's a set of rules, but there's also something to an owner who intrinsically knows their pet. And so, you know, we're pretty aware when they're not acting normally. Right. Now, happily, the pugs oftentimes don't show fear, but they will show curiosity. And so there's kind of this moment where they stop and 
my two brothers used to move in unison to look at something and I always knew that was you know right, right, right. start taking pictures and readings and they were usually right I mean the photos may be nothing but readings or historically they'd be correct well it, it's so interesting that because we work on folklore right so we work on forget about what the science is telling you or whether you get a recording or whether you get but what are people saying and back to the heart of the haunting which is what people experience and so many of those stories involve and then my animal reacted this way mm -hmm. right and then when the investigators go in they want to ignore that part or push that part aside and maybe like okay well we'll focus on that area but we're not gonna really take that as proof of anything right there but it's, go, right it is there. part yeah. of the part of the issue. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree with you. And in fact, uh, I've, I have a questionnaire that people fill out for our investigations, and it, it includes, yeah. are your animals acting up? It may not be the only issue, but if we're starting to see that there's a correlation between people reporting things, animals acting up, cold spots, hot spots, you know, whatever, right, you know, right. you can kind of start tying that together. And of course, uh, even here at Safety Harbor, as I was saying when we first got here, I brought just a really basic kit because the primary instrument for me today is, is actually Patroclus. It's actually seeing what the result is. Uh, I think he's the third generation. I don't have a lot of hope because the pugs, they walk the mound <laughs> and they just have a good time and then we go home. But, but we'll see. You know, uh, last time I was here, I was very surprised to find readings, which I wasn't expecting at all. So uh, that does get to be kind of interesting. And one of the things that we do as well is we try to create triggers. Okay. Right? So for example, we were at Arbuckle Creek a few week, uh, weeks ago where there's a legend of, of a murder that happened over a love potion. And so we brought a love potion with us. You know, or when we went to the mini lights and we actually say the saying, that's a trigger that's meant to happen. Oh, did you get the troll? We got nothing. Or the lights? We went Either to all, one? No, we went to all three spots, okay. all three potential nothing. spots. So we got shadows. nothing. Lots of yeah, so lots of shadowy figures following us around. Oh interesting. Um, well that could be the part of St. Pete that right. you're in. <laughs> though, but okay, it's fine. Um, but you know, animals can also be a, a great trigger because if yeah. it is a consciousness as opposed to like a psychic recording or something along those lines, mm -hmm. if it is a consciousness and the person loved animals in life, they're gonna respond if there's a dog there. They're gonna want to be like, oh, where there's a dog, I can throw it that in. Especially are non threatening ghosts. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, kid ghosts seem to go crazy whenever there's a uh, whenever there's an animal around. We had an interesting experience at uh, the Suntan Arts Center where they have an a, an entity. I mean, I, we studied this for two or three years, and this entity was always in a hurry. He was always doing paperwork. He would never slow down. He didn't want to interact with this, but he would set off readings and the sensitives. And I know pseudoscience, but whatever. Uh, you we're know, folklorists. We're not scientists. So. <laughs> so you know, the sensitives would pick up on this. And historically, when we looked at the building, it had at one point been used as an office for the Don Cesar. So you know, there and there's even elements of Thomas Rowe's story where he was desperate for funding and where he. Uh, created a will on his deathbed to will the hotel to his employees rather than his estranged wife and the nurse refused to endorse right, it right. so that sense of urgency and I'll be darned uh, wouldn't pay any attention to us at all until I got permission to bring the pugs and so it was the two boys and the entity actually stopped which was really yeah, interesting yeah. and for the first time sensitive started getting answers and I, you know I did say well what do you think of the pugs and he wasn't particularly impressed <laughs> but it was still enough to make him right, slow, slow down, down. Uh, and so that was that was actually pretty interesting I think that's uh, one of the paranormal pet episodes that we we popped up there uh, and before I forget the other thing on the uh, gray matter and this is just as an aside and I'll take a quick break and finish up this interview but women versus men the gray versus white matter in yeah, the brains yeah. I actually did a gender study, and uh, part of the study indicated that 
men and women basically have different brains is, is kind of what the scientists right. you know, finally came up with, which I really find interesting because from a gender point of view, you know, oftentimes women feel like they're dismissed because of their feelings. And I find it really interesting that the primary voice for the paranormal, even though the field is 60%, 70% female, it's still the male voice. Right. So when we talk about that gray and white matter, it's not just animals, but it even affects us. So I thought that was kind of a cool well, correlation. Was, I need was, to look back into that again. We were saying it was something I observed uh, when I was uh, if you're talking gender studies and, and just looking at the, at the paranormal field from that prism. When I wrote uh, the book, Picture Yourself Ghost Hunting. And so I really spent a year researching researchers <laughs> and looking at it from that perspective. And what, you, what I noticed time and time and time again were groups that were more than 50% female, and yet every single one of them, the founder slash main person was the guy, and mm -hmm. the case manager was this, and the psychic was this, but the, the tech guy always the leader a guy. Were, always, were always guys, and it was like... It was maybe a little bit too early to introduce those ideas and shake people up because it was supposed to be a very generic book, and so I didn't. But I started to note that that was kind of the way that they, mm -hmm. that paranormal groups were becoming a microcosm of society themselves, which is, in effect, its own kind of folklore. Yeah, uh, as a female founder of the spirits, I can say, I mean, it was it was really interesting. There was pushback. It was really hard to get men to join. It was interesting. I think if I didn't have the academic background, I don't think I would have gotten too many men at all. And even yeah. so, it, the team was still predominantly female for the most part. And there was uh, there was pushback. I mean, there was uh, an element of uh, distrust or, you know. I mean, usually when you see the fe <laughs> a female founder, it's a female group. Yes, like, yes, know, and that's in invariably what it ends up being. Yeah. And then unfortunately, of course, there's a split where it's like the sexy paranormal group. Like yes. Group. And you got to yes, find yes. these things that are falling oh. into classic tropes of folklore, which is the sexy woman or the ghostly older women or the. I was just listening to the folklore <laughs> podcast talking about how uh, cunning men were seen as powerful and important and almost royalty, and they're the ones that were catering. But the everyday folk, they had the creepy old lady as their witch and their cunning folk. And, it's, and that same kind of stuff continues to play itself out because we still have these ideas of what that is. It hasn't changed from the Middle Ages, yeah. quite seriously. <laughs> Very cool. Well, let's take a really quick break, and then we'll kind of wrap up the interview uh, right after these messages. Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. designerpetsweaters.com hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat beautiful couture patterns for your pets including custom-knitted formal wear casual wear yachting and even sports themed many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats top hats and a lot of sparkle each sweater includes leg loops front paw sleeves and leash opening visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today large or small we fit them all designerpetsweaters.com let's talk pets let's talk pets on pet life radio pet life radio pet life radio dot com <laughs> Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back 
with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. And welcome back. So now that we're here at Safety Harbor Mound and you were kind enough to include Patroclus oh, no, we're, in we're this, totally what are your expectations <laughs> for today? Because we'll kind of make this a, a two-parter with the interview as well. But what do you think will happen today? What do you expect? Do you think there'll be a result from the pug? I'm not sure. Uh, Either am I'm I being actually. Totally, yeah, I'm being totally open-minded. You know, I think that there is something to the idea of a daytime legend trip mm-hmm. where I think I feel right now I'm, I want to get familiarity and I want to get a baseline of what it's like mm-hmm. when the energy maybe isn't so strong. We were just talking a few minutes before we got here about I kind of want to go here when there's a really bad storm. Yesterday. Because that, <laughs> that like taps mm-hmm. a lot more into the folklore of it. You know, the folklore doesn't necessarily say in the middle of the day on a beautiful clear day is mm-hmm. when you're going to see the shaman. Correct. Um, yeah. It's usually and so, evening and west side. But. Right. And so it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I really kind of want a baseline for this. And we've seen this in multiple places we've been to. We don't get the folklore until we're there. We go, you know, uh, what was it? With the witch, the swamp witch. Where was that? Hog Island. Hog Island. Mm. Went to Hog Island. We heard all these stories and we were kind of like skeptical and looking. Then when we got to Hog Island, we could actually see the physical setup and actually find what looked like a fairy ring or like a witch's circle naturally in the environment. We're like, that's why the folklore is built around here. You know, and then of course we're able to see things about the town that made it. So what I'm looking for right now today, I'm not sure what we're going to get for results. I'm not sure if the pug's going to pick things up, but I want to get during the day, what is this place mm-hmm. like? We're going to come back tonight before it closes. What is this like? Why would people make up these stories? Mm-hmm. And why is it this kind of kind of battle between the two of them, right? It seems to be a battle between Philippe and the shaman for who might be here. Why are people why are people leaning on those two stories? So experiencing it during the day is part of that. And that is, it is interesting. And we'll find out. So I want to thank you so much for coming out here and for doing the Paranormal Pets interview. We'll actually be getting ready for part two of this, uh, walking the mound. And uh, we'll get started with that right after this. In the meantime, everybody out there, please remember (laughs) to adopt. Plenty of rescues out there. Pug Rescue, Rat Rescue has a whole bunch of new baby rats coming. So if you're interested in the state of Florida, please adopt. Otherwise, happy haunting and we'll catch you next episode. Pet Life Radio presents Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Step into the supernatural world of pets every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.